You completely have me focusing on something else now. Not necessarily what it means. Not optimism versus pessimism. But what kind of qualities go into a person that makes these decisions? Because that just sounds so much more interesting now to me. There you go, yeah. Because I had this whole conceptual, like, look at this dichotomy between these two mm. things and how they can mean this thing and how it changes people's lives. But no, no, that, that's boring. Just got to expand on things, man. Yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like simplicity and I like it to be very couples clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples. Oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking women. Right, but that's not accurate. You have weird taste. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly, if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now here's the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. What's on your mind this week? Not a whole lot. For once. I know, right? I finally had an empty-minded week just sitting around twiddling my thumbs. What's on your mind this week, Mike? So, I'd actually been thinking about this for a couple of weeks. Okay. But I was wondering about just the origin of stairs in general when they first popped up. Sure. All right. And I didn't talk about it last week. Say didn't find enough information so this week i spent more time researching it and i found exactly the same amount of information which was nearly nothing yeah that's not the kind of thing that i would think there would be a huge amount of information on it's such an old type of invention it's like trying to find a whole lot of information on the origin of the wheel it happened sometime a really long time ago i I don't know but i feel like stairs seem so complex you know that's from what i looked up (laughs) Uh uh-huh apparently stairs have been around since before civilization as we know it so before agriculture okay so it was mostly just hunter and gatherers and they were mostly nomadic you know they didn't really stay in any one place they kind of moved around and so at what point were they like you know what we really need some kind of system where we can go up and down things repeatedly in a more convenient way. Well, even when people were hunter-gatherers, a lot of groups had regular migration paths. So it's not like they just roamed wildly across the plains of Asia. People often had every fall we go south, like migrating birds almost. Right. And so that would make more sense that they might build a staircase in one rough area. It's probably true, but it's like, did they even build one? Would they use wooden logs? kind of to help them and then they just leave them there because you know they don't want to carry them around with them was it like a weird mobile ladder stairs are an interesting thing because they're almost like not even an invention like the wheel i really do think is an invention you know what i mean like you don't get things that shape naturally but stairs just kind of exist in a lot of places just naturally that's true i mean i suppose it makes sense that they're like oh this is such a convenient way to go up places Let's figure out a way to incorporate this into areas that don't have this sort of shape. Yeah, because would you call it making stairs if they just kind of flattened some of them or made them more defined? You know what I mean? I don't know. Right. Like they put up a few rocks to make a proper staircase? I don't know. But I have to imagine there are areas that were fairly steep and just flat. Yeah. 
and they thought to themselves, you know, it'd be a really good idea if we somehow created that same, I don't know what the word would be. Structure? Yeah, that we have with all those rocks that we climb up in that other place. Let's just start plugging holes and filling them with something to create like a flat surface until we have steps. Yeah, it is interesting to think about the process that people go through, especially with very simplistic things like that, to get to the point that they actually come up with that new idea of, let's do it this way. Yeah. Because I've sometimes thought about that with like early housing. Mm -hmm. Like at what point did people go from just roaming around and not having any kind of structures to building the first structure? And like, what was that evolution? Did that take 500 years for them to go like, okay, let's put some sticks around this to make a fence so that animals can't come eat our new grain or whatever we're growing to, oh, let's put a roof on top. Like how mind-blowing must that have been to be like, we can stop rain from getting in by putting something on top of it. You don't think that sort of progression- caves were a strong inspiration? I'm more impressed by doors. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, door- doors are impressive. Yeah. Because, you know, people lived in caves. Mm-hmm. And so they had an idea of something over our head and something to surround us, keep us away from the element. Mm, yeah. But we have this opening. Now, at what point were they like, you know, we only need this opening sometimes. Let's create some kind of passage or, or passage. <laughs> some kind yeah, of they're not really blockade. Passage. Right. Some kind of blockade that we can move freely when we want. I'm going to go out there on a limb and say that the invention of the door was probably at least a thousand years later than the invention of the structure. I mean, we have to find this out. Please don't anyone listen to this and be like, wow, you guys are idiots. Because <laughs> we don't. All right. We're not saying this is fact. Well, but, but think about it. The complexity involved in at least what we would think of as a door, like you need to be able to attach it to something else. You need to be able to open and close it. That, like that's not an easy thing to figure out how you can open and close it. Yeah. Like I would think people were probably using furs and even like little parts of the wall that you could just remove for a long time before right. they came up with what we would think of it as an attached door. Oh man, hinges must have been mind blowing. Yeah. But like hinges hinges have to be relatively recent. Like I can't imagine that hinges yeah. were around more than four thousand years ago. Yeah, probably because you would need that, pretty that good metal like... refining to get hinges. That's... It's at least bronze age, I would guess. If not more recent. Really? But yeah, I like I, I don't know, but if you look back to Greek architecture, a lot of their stuff, you know, yeah, was yeah. just open. So, yeah, I could easily yeah. see it being much newer. Yeah, but you know, I don't, I don't think that I'm necessarily on board with your whole. We had the idea of protection from the elements from caves. I mean, I guess we did, but to go from we can protect ourselves from the elements to you can build something, the idea that you can actually affect the environment in that way because like if you think about where people would have been generally growing stuff like when where agriculture would have started in the middle east that's not necessarily where you're going to have caves or forests or anything like that like you're not going to grow stuff in a rocky cave like mountainous area you're going to grow stuff in like a plain generally speaking and to get to the point where you're like we can actually build something or we can change something like that, that would, I have to imagine that's a huge leap. You're probably right. But maybe there's a chance that 
before people started settling down, or even people who were nomadic at the time, mm-hmm. who passed through, who maybe did stay in caves, found this really awesome proto-city, town, village, whatever, and they were like, you know, it'd be a better idea if you guys built something around it, like a cave. Because we're familiar with those. But if you have a proto-city, you already have to have structures. No. Okay. I mean, you're probably right. I don't know where I was going with the cave thing. I had nothing there. But yeah, it's almost impossible to put yourself in that mental state of going back to things that just seem so obvious and so fundamental. But, but obviously, they must have been huge, huge paradigm shifts and baffling mental developments at the time. You really have to wonder, the person who came up with this idea must have been a rock star. Well, I would think it would have happened over a long period of time. Well, I'd like to think that just that first person. One guy built a hut? Yeah, and put it together and was like, I need this. <laughs> and then everybody's like, what the heck? are you serious right now? What is that? And he's like, oh, or she's like, I don't know. I call it a, call it a hut. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's unlikely. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, it more likely progressed that people maybe built barricades, maybe built little walls or things like that right. long before they were building enclosed structures. Yeah. I'm sure they had some kind of bark TP that they slept in. So, predators wouldn't see them and probably evolve from there or something like that well yeah you could just imagine that it went from like oh you wear skins or fur or whatever to let's put a stick under the fur give us a little space all right like you know that sort of jump right and then slowly you built up into something more real but i know i just think it'd be cool if it went that way just you know one guy that's like i built the city I came up with all these ideas for a city. Other people walk in, they're like, look at these incredible caves that came down from the sky. I mean, it's a nice image. Yeah. That's the whole lone genius construct, which is very appealing, but not particularly accurate. I mean, definitely not. Yeah, definitely not. So, John makes a wild claim. That he Do I. could make anything not boring. I didn't say that I could. I said that I would try. Fine, whatever. That's less dramatic than what I said. All I could do is give it a good effort. Right. But it'd be more dramatic if you just claimed you could. All right. I could make anything interesting. There you go. Happy? There you go. He's making wild claims, people. So, I accepted this challenge of finding boring things. <laughs> to bring up and so my first topic is rope how is rope not boring see i don't even think you started with something that i would think of as boring yeah you don't think anything's boring (sighs) okay granted ropes maybe not the most fascinating thing but we just talked about stairs and huts for like 15 minutes yeah whatever rope is not boring at all like think about what rope allows for Go on. Right, like I recently was just reading about these things that people call mega structures, which are potential things that people could build on or around the planet to make interaction with space easier. And one of the things that a lot of people talk about is a space elevator, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the idea that you would have 
this essentially long, long, long rope or long, long cable that runs from the Earth to outer space. And if you make it long enough, because it has the centrifugal force pulling it out of the Earth, it would stay taut, right? So it would have to be really, really long and really, really strong. Mm -hmm. But it's the idea that instead of having to have rockets, you could just attach something to this cable and run it up into outer space. And it would greatly reduce the energy required and the cost of moving stuff into outer space. That obviously doesn't exist, and we don't know if it actually is possible to have that exist. But that's the kind of thing that rope allows for. I mean, you said cable, not the nitpick. Okay, what's the difference between rope and a cable? Material it's made out of. So, okay, what does a rope have to be made out of? I don't know, wine or something? No, no, Wool. that's definitely not legitimate at all. Ropes are made out of. A lot of ropes are made out of plastic. I mean, obviously you can make them out of like hemp and twine and cloth and things like that. Like you can make rope out of just about anything. All rope is, is something that's been woven together so that you can have small, weak fibers made into one large, strong fiber. That in of itself is an interesting concept. The idea that you can get additional strength by combining things. Like, try to apply that concept to society, right? Like, you get Uh power in numbers. You get power in cohesion. You get power when all parts of the whole are pulling in the same direction. Like, that gives you ideas behind political activism and how you... It reminds me of this very vague sociological concept, which I don't remember. (laughs) Oh, really? That one. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. You know the one that you're. Do you actually not all know it at all? I don't remember. Was all things working together for maybe not the greater good? A common goal or common end? Yeah, just to be able to accomplish more. Okay. As yeah, it's like, it's as as some would call it a force multiplier, right? Yeah. Or synergy, the idea that multiple parts working together can create a greater outcome than they could individually, mm-hmm. or even than the sum of the parts working. Right, John. You're still not making rope. Well, that that is one of the interesting things. I mean, it is interesting about rope, yeah. like the concept, why it works is is an interesting thing. Beyond even that, mm-hmm. like pulleys, pulleys can only exist because of rope, and pulleys are super fascinating. I remember. Okay, here here's a, a good thing about All rope. Right. Okay, two two things. Think about what it allows for. Think about sailing ships. Mm-hmm. Okay. And think about... That's a good one. Yeah, right? And think about Amsterdam. So sailing ships, you need rope, obviously, to have sails, to hoist sails, to move things up. Obviously, that's ropes and pulleys, right? Right. Come on. You wouldn't have any, like, European exploration. You wouldn't have any naval anything. Colonialism. Well, okay, yeah, colonialism. But <laughs> but you wouldn't have <laughs> you wouldn't have trade. You know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't have... That's true exchange of cultures there's a lot of good yeah there's a lot of good things that come rope rope was essential for that it's an essential technology and as i think back to amsterdam when i was in amsterdam one of the things that was pointed out to me and that i noted which i found Mm -hmm. weird but entertaining is that a lot of the buildings there they're kind of i don't know their front walls or the back walls are kind of tilted forward over the canals Uh because amsterdam is very flat city it's at sea level they dug out all of these canals because it was cheaper back in the, I don't know when they were dug, but 16, 1700s to dig canals and move things on barges than it was to build roads and try to do things on like carts and horses and stuff. So 
people dug out all these canals. So what they did was they built all of the buildings so that they leaned over the canals, so that they leaned forward, so that they mm-hmm. could attach ropes to the top of the building and haul things up to like the third or fourth floor on ropes from these barges directly rather than having to carry stuff in. So they had like these little kind of quasi-miniature cranes so they could load in like food for restaurants or, you know, drinks for bars or beds in a hotel or something, right? Like they could just haul stuff in. That was only made possible because of the wonderful thing of a rope. So there you go. Yeah. Okay. I'll give it to you. Don't even get me started on like mountain climbing and all that other good stuff, you know? Uh, Yeah. Okay. That's definitely not boring and you do need rope for it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I concede. More interesting. There's my first attempt. Nice. Boring things made less boring. Yeah. And you know, this goes into one of our earlier conversations because the idea for this type of conversation, it comes from the fact that where we talked about where interest is derived from, right? Right. And I still stand by my concept that if you think about something a lot and you mm-hmm. learn a lot about it, almost anything can become interesting and you can find interesting things in it. And so if you're talking about stairs, if you're talking about rope, like where it comes from, how it's used, what it's made of, the concepts associated with it, things are interesting. The world is an interesting place. So there you go. That is certainly true. And I hope I didn't like offend any rope enthusiasts. (laughs) And I don't mean people. By picking that as the most boring thing to start with. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm sure there's someone out there who just loves rope. Not using rope or the history of rope just rope itself what it's made out of how it's made different qualities of rope the process all of that it's like the wanted people and their weaving presses we have this whole yes. ancient order built around the manufacturing of rope no offense to any of you so you've brought up to me this idea around commuting in los angeles right which is something that always catches my attention because I hated it so much when I lived there. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on this concept of when people decide to fill up their cars. Right. So go ahead. All right. So a quick disclaimer. I talk about this and I mean people who commute anywhere between 20 30 miles to work and 20 to 30 miles back. And my assumption when I was thinking this was that there's some people that have the same amount of gas who will fill up before they go to work. And then there's some who will fill up after they go to work. All right. Once they're off. Yeah. And so it made me think that there's some people who don't trust their car to make it. And so they need to get gas before work. Okay. Sure. It makes them feel better. Maybe it gives them peace of mind. Maybe they're just kind of pessimistic about the whole ordeal of not getting gas before work. Maybe they're just more in the habit or they're more punctual. Right. I mean, that's possible. Because like when I lived in LA and I was going into work, I would have never got gas before because I would have been late for work as it was. Like, I'm not going to make myself later to get gas. Okay. That's fair. And then there's other people. Mm Mm-hmm who were confident that they would make it to work, mm-hmm. so they didn't stop for gas. Mm-hmm. And maybe the person who did stop for gas 
got there at the same time as the person who didn't, or maybe they got there five minutes later. I don't know. I don't know these people's lives. That's not the point. The point is the idea, not the specific what George was doing. So it just gave me this idea that there's probably some people who live their lives with optimism Mm -hmm. and pessimism and lead dramatically different lives in really minuscule ways Mm. that we don't think about. Okay. And so to me, there's these like optimists who trust things will work out. Yeah. And so they don't have to worry about getting gas before work because they know they're going to make it to work. Their car isn't going to yeah. run out on them. It's not going to pit around the side of the road or anything. And so they maybe wake up a little later. So they're just a little well rested. They're not frantic. They're not concerned. They're not, you know, rushing. It's interesting to me that you frame this around pessimism and optimism. I mean, maybe pessimism is a little harsh. Because immediately as as you're describing it, I'm not sure that the people beforehand are pessimistic as much as they're cautious. You know what I mean? That's fair. Because I just think about, I guess, my parents and the way people save their money and how Mm -hmm. some people will invest in stocks and some people will invest in like a bank account and they'll just keep cash on hand or they'll invest in real estate or something like that. And I don't think that people investing in like safer assets are necessarily more pessimistic, but they're less willing to take a risk. And so I was just thinking about somebody that fills up before they go to work. They're just not going to risk it. Because I was thinking about how I drove back home when I was a teenager and stuff. And that I often rode my car down to just about empty. And I had, I don't know, four or five times where my car actually stalled out. And I had to have like friends in my car help me push it to the gas station. Um, Because I... That sounds just like you. Yeah, well, because I was a poor teenager and I would only put in $20 at a time. So I was never really over half a tank. Well, I mean, but then that's a factor, isn't it? That contributes to your decision to not get gas. True, but... Limited funds. It's not like I couldn't have kept more gas in my tank, you know what I mean? Like, I was still spending the same amount on gas because I drove the same amount. I just kept it at a lower point in my gas tank than I could have. But I know people who never have their tank get below a quarter of a tank. They get down to half a tank and fill it up. Mm, and right. it's their natural state. The way they have things is they keep it at full. And it, like I don't think of that as necessarily pessimistic or optimistic. That's true. You know, I didn't think about it that way. That's a that's an interesting way to frame it. Mm. I mean, it sort of destroys my whole <laughs> your whole concept. Uh, yeah. Well, no, I had it does. Whole idea. It's just a different angle on it. But I think what you're talking about is a different perspective. And I think it's interesting that you would even come at it from that perspective because there's two kind of worldviews that we came at it with right there's the idea of what you expect to happen which is pessimism Mm -hmm. and optimism versus what you are willing to allow to have a chance of happening right so it's risks you're willing to take versus what you actually expect to happen which are two different ways to kind of frame and look at the world i suppose that's true still blew the wind out of my cells man oh sorry (laughs) (laughs) but talk about it from the optimistic pessimistic point of view like do you fill up before or after Generally afterwards. So you set this up to make yourself look optimistic, is that it? No, no, I didn't actually really think about it that way. Okay. I just thought about it because as I was driving to work one day, I noticed that a lot of people were filling up their tanks. Mm. And then as I was getting off work and driving home, I noticed that there were just as many people filling up their tanks. Mm. And there's a lot of things I don't know going into that. Obviously, yeah. I don't know how far they work. I don't know how much gas they had. But I'd have to assume 
that there is at least one person at a gas station right before work that had the same amount of gas as some other person at the same distance, roughly, Yeah, that didn't get gas, and this person decided to. Well, but it even reflects on another level. If you had to get gas during the day, and this is a different question, I know, but like if you knew going into the morning that you had to get gas the next day, there are different kinds of people, and some of those people would prepare and handle that before work, and some of them wouldn't bother and would handle it after work, you know? Right. Oh, I guess... That's another, that's another way to look and at it. And it's like, it's, there's a different level of preparation. Because I mm-hmm. think back to things that I've been trying to do in my life, where you try to make mm-hmm. things automatic, and you try to just do things properly. Like here in my apartment, I try, right. and I quite regularly fail, but I try to clean up and do dishes and stuff. That's John's life. <sighs> I try to clean up and like do the dishes from dinner and stuff like that, and have everything clean and spick and span before I go to bed so that when Uh I wake up in the morning, I don't have to think about, oh, I need to clean things. Oh, I need to fix things because it's just a better way to live. Or even the fact that I try to, before I go to sleep, have it laid out what the first two or three things I'm going to do the next morning are. Because I think it makes life smoother and it makes it easier and you're less mentally capable of thinking about that in the morning than you are at night. You're less sharp, right? When you wake up, you know what I mean? And so it's like somebody that puts themselves in a position where they can fill up the gas before they go to work. Like they're more prepared, more on top of it kind of person a lot of the time, I think. Right. So it's not even necessarily pessimism or or caution. It's they've thought through it enough to give themselves enough time to be responsible and handle it beforehand. All right, John, you completely have me focusing on something else now. Yeah. Not necessarily what it means, just filling up gas before work versus after work. So not optimism versus pessimism, but what kind of qualities go into a person that makes these decisions? Because that just sounds so much more interesting now to me. There you go, yeah. Just find a list of qualities for these people. Person before gas might be pessimistic or cautious or just really well prepared. Then we have this person who gets it afterwards. Maybe not as prepared. Maybe optimistic. Well, And, and you know something that I would guess about this whole gas thing. <laughs> like you currently generally fill up after you go to work, right? That's what you were saying? Mm-hmm. I would speculate generally. that people under 35 are more likely to get gas after work. And people over 35 more likely to get gas before work. Hmm. Why do you think that? There are a couple reasons. So one, older people on average get up earlier than younger people. Uh-huh. Okay. Like That's fair. That's yeah. My grandparents right. I would, get up at like 5 a.m., you know. I would not disagree with you there. That's something that I would like to have a better explanation for. Somebody needs to send me an email and tell me why old people get up at dawn. Like, I read something about how their eyes yeah, gradually right. cloud yeah. up so they don't pick up as much sunlight during the day, so their anatomical clocks can get off, and so they're more mm-hmm. likely to fall asleep earlier and get up earlier, or they don't sleep for as long. They only sleep for four or five hours instead of eight or nine hours but Mm -hmm. i don't understand how it's such a consistent thing that old people get up at like the crack of dawn maybe it's because you know they're close to death they don't need as much sleep (laughs) but that doesn't make any sense you're close to death you don't need as much sleep if you're close to death it seems like your body should need to repair itself a lot more well i mean your body's breaking down it probably knows what's going to happen soon it's just like i give up no more repair yeah okay it's like you don't you don't need these eight hours Your, your, your time's up 
It's possible. Body's failing. Immune system can't fight the diseases it used to be able to. Everything hurts. That seems like an inadequate in explanation to me. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I didn't mean to have it Your body be an adequate explanation. Up. Okay. So that's one thing. Old people get mm-hmm. up early. So they're going to be more mm-hmm. likely to do it before work. But the other thing is, I've noticed in myself that like I was just describing about how I try to handle things the night before huh? so that things are easier, that right. I've gotten bitten in the face a lot by not being prepared for things. Mm-hmm. And that as one of my high school math teachers told me, everything is about timing. You're going to learn this stuff at some point over the course of the year. It's just better if you learn it before the test so that you can pass the test rather than learn it after the test so that you fail the test. Either way, you're going to learn it, right? So being prepared and doing things at the right time can make your work dramatically easier. And I've noticed this with all Mm -hmm. sorts of things in my life that have not gone as well as they could have because I didn't do things at the right time or I wasn't prepared enough in the moment. And I think that gradually over people's 20s and maybe over their 30s, they get better at that. Yeah, I think people gradually get better at that. They gradually figure out, hey, if I can do this beforehand, I probably should because it just makes it easier. Because think about it, like if you can do it before work, you know you don't have anything else to do before work, but maybe you suddenly have to rush out of work at the end of the day and go do something. And now you have to spend an extra 15 minutes pulling into a gas station behind four semis and waiting and then filling up. If you did it before work, you could run right off and pick up your dry cleaning. have to imagine that if you're parked behind four semis, you yourself are driving a semi. Not necessarily. There are those... Why would four semis be going into a car-sized gas station instead of a semi-sized gas station? There are those Chevron stations that have diesel and the same thing as like unleaded and premium and all of that. I think no. I think that's a legitimate thing. I just, I've never seen one drive into like a normal size. On, on like the highway, you would station. see it all the time. On the highway? We're talking about cities here. Not the middle of nowhere. <laughs> all right. This is beside the point. Is it though? Isn't this what we're I'm just saying that like really get into it. Well, what do you think of that idea? Do you think people would you agree with my my concept? Yes, it's much more logical than mine. I'll take it. Yeah, but I was going to start trying to make up other examples about how this optimism and pessimism could apply to their lives. But your thing just it's better. You, you squashed me. It is interesting, though, to think about how your worldview, like with optimism or pessimism, affects your decision-making in a broader context. That's too late, John. It's It's too late to redeem it. We'll have to come (laughs) back to this because I do want to talk about it. I mean, I'm kidding. Yes, no. I mean, you're right. But now I have to come up with a whole different idea because the before and after work, gas fill up. See, I can't even talk anymore. I think we should talk about, not now, but in the future, immigration and moving to a new country and things like that and optimism and pessimism. Because myself and one of our very good friends, Carlos, both moved to another country to teach in Korea, right? We both were teaching mm-hmm. English there. And I think taking the step to leave your hometown, much less taaking the step to leave your country, leave country. and start that's, a new career a in a thing you've never done before, I think that that takes a certain level of optimism. That if you are super pessimistic, oh, you're just never going to take that plunge. That is definitely true. Yeah. You are not wrong. Yeah. That is interesting. We should talk about that. Not now. We'll just leave everyone seething with anticipation. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Okay. I really wanted to talk about this for a long time. 
it has been, mm-hmm. I think, broadly accepted that there's been a political realignment in the last little while, yes. the last couple decades. So it would be safe to assume that. And generally the way this is discussed is that since the 1920s, maybe, or the turn of the century, probably, there's been this conservative socialist divide in the world. Mm-hmm. And that that largely revolved around government spending and social programs and domestic policy, I guess. Right. Largely speaking, how the pie was divided up at home. Right. And it's become very, very apparent in the last couple of years. But I think increasingly over the last 15 to 20 years, really since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union, there has been this gradual repositioning to, instead of caring about solely how things are divvied up domestically, to care about how your country interacts with the rest of the world. That is very true. And I just wanted to... I have a very quick question. Yeah. Do you think the Cold War shifted the focus towards that international relationships? I think the end of the Cold War focused people on that. You don't think that tension between the U.S. and the Soviet Union may have caused people to sort of think about how they interact with other countries and the relationship they have. I kind of view it almost in the opposite light, where the Cold War and the tension between the Soviet Union and the Western capitalist states, the United States and Western Europe, I think that that tension was kind of a stable state of affairs. And that the stability there, the fact that nothing was changing really, allowed for people to focus inward. I see. Like this external thing is not an issue. Nothing's going to change. Nothing that we do domestically can change this. In terms of like from a political party standpoint, no activist is going to be like, let's change how we relate to the Soviet Union because there's just this thing where two countries have thousands of nukes pointed at each other. And well, let's hope nobody bombs anybody else. But other than that, like, what are you going to do? I got you. There was status quo, and then there wasn't. Right. And then when that changed, suddenly everything was very dynamic and changing rapidly. Mm -hmm. And we immediately, not just we in the United States, but the entire world immediately opened up and integrated with everybody else very quickly. Right. And I think a lot of people have been reticent to that. Quick question again. Yeah, sure. Would you say that the people who were born around there or children age, like toddler age. I, I don't know exactly what age. Born 1985 and on. Sure. Sure. We'll, we'll go with that. Okay. Do you think their lives are radically different after the end of the Cold War because it ended? Yes. Certainly when you look at people that were in the Eastern Bloc, were in the Warsaw Pact mm-hmm. and all of that, mm-hmm. their lives are obviously different. They didn't grow up under communist regimes. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. is actually one of the things that I find really interesting. It's it's only tangentially related to what we're talking about. But right. there are some countries that don't have capitalist traditions. Mm-hmm. And so certain things that are kind of obvious to us in, in the United States and would be obvious to people in places like the Netherlands or Switzerland or most Western European countries, even Latin American countries, things like that, um, mm-hmm. just are not obvious to them. And so when you think about, like, I was reading an article recently on Russia and Uh the funeral industry in Russia, and it was talking about how the local governments have a lot to do with it. You kind of have to bribe people. There are these weird 
gray market, black market guys that arrange for it and you have to pay these weird fees. It doesn't function like a private market. It doesn't function like these are private companies that you go and you pay for service and then it gets handled. Because like it was always right. handled by the church before the Soviet Union. And then it was always handled by the state during the Soviet Union. And after the Soviet Union, there was no tradition around having it be a market. So it was just this weird free-for-all where people could just do illegal things and like there were there were no norms established that's that's i don't want to use the word interesting (laughs) i don't Uh, but it's pretty crazy i mean it almost sounds like the plot to a book mm, like an alternative reality book you know where the world is different that's what alternative reality would be yeah but the only thing that's different is that there isn't a market for funerals so it's all weird black market bribing situations well but i think this applies not i mean obviously not just to funerals but like to to all sorts of things where the norms are just different oh i'm sure i mean i imagine that we'd have to like experience some of those situations to really understand them yeah or even be aware of them at all well and i mean there are other things with this right like one of the best examples of this sort of thing i think is when you look at the United States after independence, Mm -hmm. every European country had an aristocracy. Every European country had a heavily entrenched class system, along with all Asian societies, pretty much. The United States didn't have that built-in aristocracy. Yes, they had like wealthier people, and they had people who had land, who had additional rights above people that didn't have land. But it wasn't tied to your birth. You didn't have this, Hmm. you're born into the status, this is who you are, you're going to be this forever. So there was this flexibility that existed in the United States that just Mm -hmm. could not exist in Europe at the time. Because in order for Europe to get to that point, they had to tear down all of this existing hierarchy everywhere, right? Right. And that's the kind of thing where somebody growing up in the United States wouldn't even have that concept of there's this upper class nobility who are inherently superior to us, but that it's so entrenched in a place like 17th century France that it's like, obviously, there could be no other way that the world could exist other than having this entrenched nobility that is above us. Sure. There were countries even into like the 20th century that had aristocracies. Well, they still do, yeah. I mean, you have Saudi Arabia that has, you know, the Saudis, who just, there's what, 2,000 of them or something that... Yeah. All over the country. That's true. I guess that's true. But I don't think people feel like they're superior to them. I think they're just like, oh, they have all that money from the oil. And so they're better off than we are. Well, it's really hard to tell because, like, I was in Thailand a year and a half ago, two years ago. I don't know, a a while ago. Mm -hmm. And the king had died, I don't know, a month before I got there. And the entire country was wearing black. The entire country was in mourning for an entire year. After the fact. I had heard that they were very fanatical about their king. Yeah, he's, he was revered on a level that would be astounding to you and I, mm-hmm. being that he's just a guy, and he's not even yeah. necessarily... Like, he ruled for a very long time, but he's not a guy that mm-hmm. did anything hugely impressive. Like, he, you know, he wasn't Einstein, you know? Like, <laughs> he right. didn't change the world in any marked way. And... Mm-hmm. Obviously, the United Kingdom has a monarch, but I don't think most people in the United Kingdom would revere 
like they would be sad if the queen died, but they wouldn't revere her in the same way that the ties do. And it's just that right. we could not see through their eyes. We can't fathom the perspective sure. they have because we grew up in a society that doesn't have anything like that. But is it just the entire society has just agreed upon this? I don't even think is it's it taught to you in school. Like this is one of the interesting things about culture. You don't necessarily agree on it. It's just there. Well, it's, I mean, I'm not asking this to be like incredulous or anything. Mm. I just want to know how that developed. When when did like they all what in just particular the the revering of the Thai royalty? Well, yeah, has it just been long-standing for several decades, centuries? Well, you would have had that in Europe in the Middle Ages, right? Yeah, I think it's natural when you see people with incredible wealth and power to revere them, especially if you're told repeatedly that they are special or related to the gods or something like that, or chosen by God or whatever it happens to be. That was such a strong play. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's really just pro, pro strats. Yeah. yeah, some king was just like, I was chosen by God. And everyone was like, okay, we buy it. Whatever you say. I think it was probably the Pope, right? In order to entrench the Pope's power, he was like, no, God chooses kings. And so if I don't sign off on you being king, you can't be king. I mean, good on him too. Yeah. I mean, maybe not good on him, but. Yeah, but I just it gives the king a lot of power, I think. Yeah, it gives him a lot of authority oh, when you can speak with the yeah. force of God. That is very, very And then true. the kind of confidence that has to give you, because I'm sure some of those kings like bought into the hype. You know? Mm. They're like, I, I was chosen by God, because why wouldn't you believe it? You're king in a time and place where everyone's dirt poor, their lives suck, and you happen to rule a whole country. They probably had a lot of confidence going out and trying to conquer places and fighting all the time that's probably why they did it they're like i was chosen by god i could do this i could take anyone well and i think sorry i, I didn't mean to get all it's fine i think the whole worldview back then was quite different there was a concept of glory and power that doesn't exist today in the same way We're probably not wrong the glory of your country was dependent on you conquering all of these other countries and being superior to everybody else whereas i don't think nowadays Dutch people feel really bad because their country is not as big and powerful as Russia. I think but Dutch people are perfectly happy as long as their country is a good country to live in and is good for the people and all of that. That's fair. So we're getting a little off track. I'm going to reel us back. Okay, here. good. So nationalism versus globalism, I apologize. It's, it's fine, yeah. Yeah, so the previous divide was largely over social policy, especially when you look at something like the United States, where mm -hmm. during the Cold War, because there were kind of such high stakes, and if you made a wrong move, the whole world was dead. Right. It pushed everyone toward consensus. Like, no one was going to choose somebody that was extreme. Like, right now we have Donald Trump, who, like him or hate him, is an extreme kind of figure. Mm -hmm. He rose up on the far right. He did not rise up as a centrist, middle-of-the-road kind of candidate. You would have never gotten somebody that was that extreme during the Cold War because everyone would have seen it as too dangerous. And people right. would have been terrified of that sort of thing. So somebody like Bernie Sanders on the left, somebody like Donald Trump on the right, it wouldn't have been possible. So the only differences that kind of could exist in that high stakes environment were social policy and were the way that we divvied up the pie, for lack of a better phrase, within the country. And since the fall of the Soviet Union, I think that's when the realignment started because immediately we swung after the fall of the Soviet Union toward globalism. And I think before that, the United States, 
and Western Europe kind of stood for liberal democracies. We stood for globalism. We stood for right. integrating the world and having consistent rules-based capitalism around the world. Like that was our worldwide platform. That's what we fought for and we fought against communism. Mm -hmm. But then when communism went away, our system essentially took over everywhere. Right. And there are exceptions yes. to that, but largely we took over everywhere with the Washington Consensus and the whole Eastern Bloc joining the European Union and all of that. And I think what we've had since 2007, since 2008, since the major financial crisis has been a backlash to that. But because it's a backlash to that, you've had this driving force that everyone was of consensus toward globalism. And then when we had the backlash against globalism, suddenly that became the divide. And the earlier divide became less important because now the fight that was being fought was not over social policy necessarily, as much as it was this new divide between whether or not we want to be integrated and open with the world or whether or not we want to be closed and try to defend our own interests. You know, I think about growing up mm. and being like 13, 14, 15. Yeah. And people talking about globalization, mm -hmm. but so sporadically, almost like quietly. Yeah. That I, I, I had friends, I'm not going to name any names, who probably heard talks about countries unifying to create unions and was like coming up with like weird conspiracies and maybe not coming up with weird conspiracies, but sort of seeing these things happening and falling into the conspiracy and believing them and being like, oh man, New World Order, Freemasons. Bohemian Grove. Yeah, like it's all getting, you know, unified. They're going to take over and kill us and stuff. And <laughs> okay. It was, <laughs> and it's just so funny. They jump. Oh, the world's unifying. They're going to kill us. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And it's, it's so wild to see people have that idea just just because you know countries are starting to build better relationships or joining to improve their economies or make trade easier or whatever it is whatever reason yeah they're doing what they're doing because mm -hmm. granted i was a kid before i was a teenager so you know i didn't really talk about politics but i don't think that that was that was probably something people were worried about then in a crazy way you know like i don't think that was a crazy conspiracy people had what the new world order type the, thing? like yeah yeah like you know all the countries of the world all the super powerful are going to unify and enslave you mean everyone else. that wasn't an issue before the end of the cold war no. or when we were we were kids i don't think it was like a weird conspiracy even when we were children like in the 90s yeah it definitely emerged much more like i was first made aware of it in university when i took a business law class and my professor was an insane person who literally gave us like extra credit assignments to, to go do research on the new world order and George Soros and uh, <laughs> the impact of like the Rothschilds and stuff like that and how they were ruling the world. Like she gave us assignments about all of these conspiracy theory things. And I had to at one point file a formal complaint with the department because it was like, we're not learning anything about copyright or torts or anything like that we're learning about conspiracy theories about george bush being part of the freemasons and skull and bones or yeah whatever. exactly stuff like that i'm like good lord like how is this what tenured professors are focused on oh i was uh, yeah i was frustrated <laughs> but you're right that sort of thing like when you i mean i think that sort of thing has been around for a long long time 
Uh, I'm sure it has. Yeah, I just think when you hear those talks, because, you know, things started being, you know, globalization versus sticking to the country. Mm. It's just weird that that's, that's the thing that some people, not all people, but some people gravitated towards were like these crazy conspiracies. It is interesting how people, so, a lot of people do jump to conspiracies just automatically. Yeah. Yeah. Conspiracies are so interesting to me. Anytime the opportunity arises, I just, I'm going to bring up a conspiracy theory. It's just going to happen. Okay. Yeah. That is, it's funny because that's one of the areas of major ignorance for me because I just, just largely ignore them immediately. Yeah. They're total garbage, but you should just read them just because why not? It's, it's like reading a really fun book or watching like a dumb show. See, that's, that's an argument that I could not disagree with more. You just said it's garbage. And so you're basically saying, oh, it's garbage. Why not just stuff my face with this garbage and like wallow and lay around in this garbage and pollute my mind with this garbage. The reason not to do that is because it's garbage. That's fair. When you read something, it makes it a part of you. Yeah. Anyway. Entertainment is entertainment, man. That's the world we live in. Let me hop off my high horse for a moment. (laughs) So when you think about this sort of thing, how do you think about it? Where, how do you define your politics? Because I think the big shift is that the most important issue for people is different than the most important issue was 20 or 30 years ago. Now the most important issue is immigration or it, you know, it, it's things like that as opposed to 30 years ago when the most important issue was tax policy or the most important issue was social programs or welfare or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need you to talk about your personal politics, but just, like, what issues do you think are most important to you and the people around you? To the people around me, I would definitely say they are concerned with immigration, mm. a great deal of them. Yeah. And not necessarily in regards to, like, illegal immigration. Okay. But just any foreigners trying to come to the country or, you know, refugees that need help. Okay. That just seems to be a really big issue it's a for everyone. Big hot button for like, both sides. Yeah. Right, yeah. Who to help and who not to help, who to let in, who not to let in. Mm. And not necessarily whether they're poor or not, just what color are they? What religion do they follow? Mm. It's weird to see people argue about that kind of stuff. Okay. But I see it a lot. Not as much now. Now it's more people who just really hate Donald Trump and think he's trying to destroy everything ever at all times yeah well you're in southern california a hotbed of anti-trumpness although living here in ireland like everyone is astounded by him and constantly appalled by the things he says so i think it's almost universal yeah. around the world but it's, it's interesting as i watch the political progression over the last several years because mm-hmm. even watching the 2016 election mm-hmm. it's really noticeable to me how trump fought it on terms of nationalism versus globalism. That that is yeah. Those are the terms That's in which exactly. he fought the, the war. And when you look at France's presidential election this last year in 2017, mm-hmm. that's the way the winner Macron fought the war. He was on the other side, he was on the side of globalism, but he mm-hmm. redefined the debate around that issue. And it's interesting to look at the Democrats in the United States because the Democrats are still fighting on the older issue, like they're still fighting on raise taxes Social, on the rich, right. they're still fighting on crackdown on Wall Street, things like that. Mm-hmm. And while I don't think those issues have necessarily gone away completely, 
I think in this new era, you have to define the core of your policy platform on where you stand in terms of global trade and global integration and immigration and things like that. Like that has to be a yeah. core part of your platform. And I think one of the issues that the Democrats are facing, even going into this next election, like I think this next election will be a real breeze for them because everyone hates Trump and the Republicans so much. I think that that sentiment is widespread, that at least that they're incompetent, mm -hmm. but also that they're possibly pernicious. So I think this one will be easy, but I think going forward after this, especially in 2020, the Democrats really need to get on the same page with that because I don't think that they have a unifying platform. And the Republicans don't either. But if, if you have somebody like Bernie Sanders take over, who is so on the fence with a lot of things in terms of global trade, in terms of immigration, like he was kind of more on the Donald Trump side of being against trade and against immigration when his whole party is more for immigration and more for trade. And so it, it's a weird situation where you have these divisions within the parties and the parties haven't realigned yet. And France has like hypercharged this and completely realigned their parties. Or at least right. the ruling party has kind of realigned the system. But mm -hmm. the United States, I think, will be much slower to shift. And I think Trump is perhaps accelerating it because he's making right. the Republicans the nationalistic party. Which will right. force the Democrats. Well, I think they immediately jumped on board too. I think that's a lot of them haven't though. Like you have a lot of Republicans in in the Senate. You have the the a lot of the party base is like the business elites, and the business elites right. are the biggest proponents of international free trade and globalism and all of that. That is the platform of the business elites, and that is a large branch of the Republican Party. But if they do fully shift their platform toward nationalism, and that is like an enduring legacy of Trump, then those business elites will bleed to the Democrats. Hmm, that's Even if the Democrats have I, higher taxes. Right. It's just because the way I see it is I, you see a lot of those guys who I think I would consider more of the business elite, I guess, Republicans, mm -hmm. who are really critical of Trump during the campaign and very anti-Trump who immediately jumped on board as soon as they saw that he was going to win the presidency. Right, but they jumped on board. And so I don't know if that's so much because now they're the party in power and they want to squeeze their way into a secretary position or as a chair somewhere. And I'm assuming that's why, right? Well, I think there's a big difference but, between saying, oh, this guy's going to be president. Let's figure out how to work with him and get the things that we care about from his presidency versus saying what he believes in his core platform is the same as our core platform. Like you have a lot of Republicans who wanted to have this tax cut that they've implemented, right? And mm -hmm. they knew that they had to get the president on side and work with the president in order to get the tax cut. And it's like, okay, we'll work with him then if we can get what we want out of it. So they like I just I don't know I'm I'm not sure they've necessarily shifted their policy, right? But what I mean is when you see people working with Donald Trump who don't have the same platform that Donald Trump has, but you see that they're working with him and they're part of the same party, right? People people just naturally come to that conclusion. Voters, yeah, come to those conclusions. But, I think, and that's I think that's what sort of shifts the party because say you have some other Republican running for president or something. Yeah. And he's very pro globalization, mm -hmm. but you know, all the voters have already shifted their thinking towards this very like nationalistic idea. And so they're antagonistic towards this new K 
candidate well, and this is one or of what have you. The issues with the American electoral system and the fact that it forces everyone into two parties, just based upon mm-hmm. its structures, that on both sides you do have these large coalitions. And so with Republicans, you do have this business elite, you do have the nationalist people, you do have the people who are just libertarian, you know, and just don't want any government. You have the religious evangelicals and all of that. The things that they care about most are very different. And so you might have one president who's like Trump, who's representing the nationalist wing of that party. And then the next president Mm -hmm. who's just super evangelical and super religious, and he's representing a slightly different wing. Mm -hmm. So I, I I, I think that the parties are more flexible in that way. But there are certain, I think, core things. And if being against free trade or against immigration becomes a core part of the platform of like one or two presidents or presidential candidates, if, if that continues for 10 years, then that is what the party is. If, okay. if it changes more regularly than that, then it, I think, stays more flexible. But it's a hard thing to deal with. But I definitely think that that is where politics is now and where it's going forward. I just so I recently saw this like uh, stand up show mm-hmm. from Dave Chappelle. Yeah, it just came out. It's pretty. He's great. Yeah, uh, yeah, super hilarious. And he had this little bit where he was talking about when he went to go vote this past election, mm-hmm. and that there's like a lot of poor white voters. But he was like looking at them and watching them talking, and because they were obviously all going to go vote for Donald Trump, they were like, "Yeah, he's going to fight for us." You know, he was talking about bringing jobs back yeah. for, you know, people in the country and trying to revive whatever industries are dying. Mm-hmm. And like Dave Chappelle was all like, not fighting for you guys. I'm rich. He's fighting for me. And it was really funny, right? Or whatever. Mm. But I think that thing he said, right, because they were poor and they thought this dude was fighting for him was totally like a nationalistic thing. Right. And I think. That's what's going to attract a lot of the more conservative rural voters. I just think that it's it's going to have like a really big impact on candidates to, to get votes. Not necessarily that that's what they want, but that's what they're going to be talking about. And, and I think prior to this, the mm-hmm. old Cold War orthodoxy held up until this most recent election in 2016. And mm-hmm. the wings of the Democratic Party and the wings of the Republican Party, they kind of were dominant during the Cold War had clung on. It's kind of like corporate or blue dog Democrats who support free trade and support internationalism and generally support a good business environment and things like that with some social policies sprinkled in, were kind of in control. Mm -hmm. And with Republicans, you had these, again, corporate, internationally supporting free trade business Republicans that were generally in charge. And their grip has weakened But the thing was, the more extreme parts of those parties, like the socialists on the Democratic side and the nationalists on the Republican side, just kind of had to vote for their side because obviously the socialists aren't going to vote for the conservatives. Like that's not going to be a thing. And the nationalists aren't going to vote for the Democrats who support immigration. And the nationalists tend to be more conservative. And so it's like we had these moderate wings that were very similar that controlled each of the parties and these large fringe groups had to vote for their side because that was the only option. Right. And 
now you'd have other parts of the parties taking over. And so these guys, instead of having to fall in line, they can actually take control. And so those voters that you're talking about just now that politicians mm-hmm. would likely play to, this leads into a different conversation about primaries. But mm-hmm. they always just had to fall in line and vote for conservatives because those were the only people they could vote for. They weren't going to vote for big city Democrats. Like that wasn't going to be a thing that they were ever going to do. They had to just fall in line with whatever policy Republicans happened to put forward. Now the orthodoxy has broken down enough that they mm-hmm. can kind of take control and influence it in a really significant way. And I think that's in large part because of primaries, because so few people participate in primaries and primaries are so important with deciding who gets elected, both at the presidential level and at lower levels, that it's it's caused more extreme people to rise up in in each of the parties in the last fifteen years. So very fascinating. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to sound like that. I just I do think it's fascinating. It makes me think the other candidates who are maybe extreme in different ways mm. that'll take advantage of that, who are going to study Trump's success and use it to push some other agenda. Mm. I, think it, I don't have any examples. I just wonder if that that'll become a thing. If we'll see, you know, candidates trying to push whatever they want to push in the primaries hoping or finding something that voters care about and exploiting that to to get in positions that they might not ordinarily be able to get in. Well, that's the whole point of the primaries, right? So that the candidates and the parties become more responsive to voters. I think the problem is that the voters in primaries are 1% to 5% of the population, and so they're naturally going to be the more extreme, more activist type groups rather than Mm -hmm. the more mainstream normal people that want more normal stable things but you're right yeah it it is it is a potential risk going forward and i'm very curious to watch how it unfolds in the next five to ten years but my my bigger concern with this whole realignment is that Mm -hmm. increasingly it's looking like the democrats or the left of center parties around western world are identifying as the international party and the Mm -hmm conservative or right-of-center parties are identifying more as the nationalist parties. Mm -hmm. And as that divide becomes more entrenched, I'm concerned that the social policy will follow the same track, that those parties will cling on to their old social policy norms, and voters will be kind of caught in this thing where if they want to support the international liberal order and they want to support free trade and they want to support sensible things like businesses being able to invest overseas and things like that, that they're going to end up also having to support more extreme social policy that they don't necessarily want to support, right? You get stuck with this basket of things that you don't necessarily want. Like if you want low taxes, but you want free trade, suddenly you have no option, right? Right. Or you're going to be stuck with, oh, I'm going to vote for low taxes and I'm going to vote for good business policy, but I'm stuck with these guys that want to completely shut down the borders and isolate the country from the rest of the world and things like that. And Mm. it's just, it's a problematic redefining of the axis of politics because there's this whole chunk of the population that suddenly has has no one that really supports a platform that they would endorse, you know? Right. Yeah. You kind of get stuck. Yeah. Between a rock and a hard place. So this is our 11th show. Made it past the 10. Yeah. Woo. 
And I kind of think about, and I I know we've talked about this before, uh, the first 10 as our kind of trial run, our first kind of season-ish thing, right? Mm -hmm. I know there are no seasons in podcasting. We we don't have a season. We're just continuing on week by week. But it's kind of this break point in my mind. And so I was just wondering if you had any reflections or thoughts on the first 10, the first couple months of our run, where we're going from here, anything like that? I think it's kind of cool to see the way that we are evolving mm, yeah yeah because the first episode was largely just one giant topic with a little bit of other stuff sprinkled true around it yeah i just ranted about china for an hour yeah it was great <laughs> don't listen to that or listen to it i mean i don't know how much you love china people i think it was pretty interesting no it, was like, it wasn't the worst thing for your first go no 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 no, no. being lectured is fine <laughs> but <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. that's not what i mean but just we sort of had an idea and it sort of shifted, yeah. you know, just into this, I think, more organic thing. I think what we were trying to do originally was a good idea. Mm. But how we talk about things now, it's kind of cool to see it turn into this. What I think is more true to who we are yeah. as friends and conversationalists. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's what we should put on our bios. Professional conversationalist. I, I agree with you. And I, and I think that's natural with creative collaborations and podcasts in particular, mm-hmm. because they're such a kind of, I don't want to say casual, but they, they, they are a conversation. They're not scripted. Right. I think you are always going to find a natural evolution to it. And mm-hmm. I am glad that we have stuck to it and continued on with our weekly schedule and really focused on growing and changing. And I'm really eager for the next 10 as we go through and we really try to prune it down to just the best stuff and we hear back from listeners and we hear back from friends and get reviews and can work on improving it and i am glad that now in our 11th episode we finally have what i think of as adequate audio quality like i'm really happy to have gotten to the point where we sound good it's Really funny to me as I go back and review and try to build my own feedback for the earlier episodes and just hearing mm-hmm. my lack of skill in editing and my lack of skill in recording and things like that. Right. And so I, I think it's really nice to have those early recordings and be able to see the progression, to watch right. yourself grow yeah. and change. So my girlfriend gave me this really funny idea. Mm. She mentioned making the spooky episode a drinking game. Okay. Basically, just take a shot anytime I use the word spooky. All right, yeah. But it made me think of the season as a whole. And we spend a lot of time talking about what we do wrong in between recording episodes, me and John. Yeah. And one of the things that we notice is that we have habits of saying certain words. So I was thinking about this drinking game. And if you guys really want to ruin your day, <laughs> you should play this drinking game with the first season and drink anytime. John uses the word distinct. And anytime you say interesting. Yes. Yeah. Or if you really want to kill yourselves, just anytime I use the word like. <laughs> you will not last uh, long. Well, and it's funny because, because the f- I've cut out probably half of the likes that you say over the course of these 10. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's obviously we're improving and trying to, but we want to have fun with our amateurish attempts while we were learning and developing. Have fun with alcohol, but don't drive. That's yeah, that's the moral of the story. Have fun mm-hmm. with alcohol. And, and don't drive that. That's also the moral of the story. Right, of course. Yeah. Can't forget yeah. that part. 
that, that's a good idea. I've yeah, I've definitely really enjoyed the process. And you know, just as yeah. a, as a little last thing that I wanted to mention, I was thinking about mm-hmm. this in terms of the recordings and watching our development. And this idea occurred to me that I think you'll appreciate as a musician that I wish back when I was really working on my craft musically and I was studying music mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I recorded myself regularly playing the same pieces. Like when I first sight read a piece of music and then multiple times over the course of my working on it and improving, I wish that I knew something about skill development and how to learn things back then. Because like, obviously, you know, as you practice that you get better as you play scales right. for hours and hours and hours that you, your tone yes. improves and things like that. Right. Uh, I don't even want to think about how <laughs> tedious that was. The scales and arpeggios for days. Good time. But you can't really see your progression. You know what That's I mean? True. You can't go back and watch it. So it doesn't seem nearly as real as it would be if you actually recorded it. So just advice out there to any aspiring musicians or really anybody that's working on any sort of audio or visual creative work. Record some of your early stuff. Record yourself as you go through the process of learning. Because one, like we've seen with our first 10 episodes, you can find a lot of less than stellar parts and you can find a lot of things to correct. And so it really helps you in the learning process. But two, it's really encouraging to see your progress and see how you went from being absolutely incompetent to being marginally acceptable. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. And I also encourage that with writing. Yeah. People who are writing, don't throw stuff away. Keep it. Exactly. I, I completely Hide agree. it away. Even with drafts. Go back and read it. This is something because I, I have a couple projects I'm working on that involve writing right now. And one thing that I've been doing much more than I ever did before was saving drafts so that I can look back and see what was the first thing that I wrote on this and then see after I get to my 10th draft, oh, this is how it's changed and grown and developed. It's an interesting thing to just see how your mind works, how your editing process works, to watch all of these sorts of things and give yourself feedback. And like John said, it really is encouraging. It really is. is. Yeah. And you might think it's depressing because you look back and you're like, wow, I really sucked. But to see how much you can grow and see the impact of the time and effort you've put in is greatly encouraging. Yeah, definitely. Because even if you aren't great after your fifth or sixth or a hundredth try, you're definitely better than after your first try. <laughs> that is a fact, yes. Yes. And so it's always good to go back and see your first try and then laugh at what you thought was acceptable. Yeah. You know, that you well, better. and you know, it's, it's really funny to me with this show because when we first published it, I shared it with a couple of my friends just to get feedback to get comments on what we were talking about the way we were talking the way we were interacting everything right and not one of them mentioned the editing or the audio quality or anything like that and it's just funny to me because obviously we're very aware of it Uh in doing it and i think a lot of people probably would notice in some of the episodes that you know there's some audio issues or some static or things like that but most listeners are just not even really aware and i think that that applies to most creative things that you do, most art that you work on. If you're a musician and you play a piece of music that you've Mm -hmm. played a thousand times, you're aware of every missed rhythm. You're aware of every pitch that was off or missed fingering or something like that. But Uh, the audience generally has no idea. Unless you're really bad. But like, if you're halfway decent... Or unless someone in the audience is very good at music 
<laughs> well, but they don't even need to be good at music. They need to be good at music and know the piece that you're playing. Ah, uh, that's. I guess that is also true. You're right. And and so yeah, it's it takes a, it, yeah. It is a company. It's, it's just it's not a huge thing, and you are always going to be able to see more errors in your own work than other people. Which is also why it's so important to record yourself and give yourself feedback because other people can't pick it apart as much as you can because you know what you tried to do. And they don't. Wow, this is becoming semi-motivational. There you go, man. That's that's <laughs> that's my yeah. yeah. That's my whole shtick. Yeah. So you know, you guys should just give us money for like the way that motivational speakers get money. Yeah, Mike. Mike charges only, for his motivational speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Only our our thing is at least interesting, <laughs> and we don't lie to you. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe John lies to you. I don't know about John's life. We just invent random things about mud huts and stairs salt. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we do make up a lot of things. <laughs> I don't think we make things up. I think we speculate on things. There's a difference there. I mean, that's also... I mean, we do both. But speaking of giving <laughs> us money, I did want to mention <laughs> as we sign off today. Yes. We do have a Patreon. We're also beggars. Yes, we are beggars. We are on Patreon. Patreon, for those of you that don't know, is a website where people that create independently and create things for the internet and the world can be supported by their audience. So you can go on patreon.com slash WWOTS and support us, support what we're doing. If you like what we're doing, you can keep us going by donating a dollar or whatever you want, really. And we have some different perks and things that we give to our supporters there. You can also, Mm -hmm. if you really want to make us happy, share this with your friend or your father or your cousin, whoever you like, really, one of your teachers at school. Yeah. And you can always find our show notes at subjectradio.com slash WWOTS slash 010. Oh, sorry. 011. Ah. Ah. 011. (sighs) This is him disappointing everyone at all times. Subjectradio.com slash WWOTS slash 011. Episode 11. There we go. So is that it, John? Yes, I think so. Let's talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.
And then just for any of you that need strong encouragement and want to donate, the best gift that we have is a picture of John fully clothed, which means not having to see him naked. And I know people always want that. So if you donate enough money, you don't have to see John naked. Think about it. Uh-huh. Okay. Stop people with you. Okay. Are we, you, can, you can cut that out I, if you I'm want. I'm definitely obviously. gonna cut that out. <laughs> Are we done, Mike? Is that is that it? Yeah, yeah, we're done. Okay. We're done. <laughs> oh, I thought it was funny. It, it was weird. <laughs> like it could have it it could have been funny, but it was weird.